Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about media production. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, Michael, Matt, I'm sorry, Matt Bach will be here. Uh, he's a hardware analyst from Puget Systems, and uh, he's going to be specializing in, he's specializing in content creation, workstations, and how they build them. So it's a great time for you to ask what should you put in your computer? What your PCs and how they're built, and uh, and exactly, you know, this is these are these are the experts at this. So, uh, great second hour coming up there. So, if you've got questions about how to build the PCs, what makes a difference, what doesn't make a difference, throw those questions in right now. Let's go ahead and jump into the first hour questions. Um, Jason, what do we got? Andy Carluccio in San Francisco writes in thoughts on the new release notes for Isadora's beta testers. Quite the change log and then a rather verbose discord link. Yeah, I mean, Isadora seems to be hitting on all cylinders here. And one of the things that's really interesting is they're releasing an SDK uh, for, for Isadora, which is really interesting. Um, so I think there's a lot that's going to be potentially uh, really powerful. Go ahead, Jonas. I was about to say, I think it's a really cool release and uh, sometimes you don't realize in what beta version you've been working with, like Office Hours, we always had like some of the features. I'm like, oh, that wasn't part of the stable release. Got it. Right. That's basically what we uh, require to have the show running. So it's great to uh, see stuff like the JSON bundler, JSON parser, like a lot of the things come in there. Um, Visca, PTZ controller, and a lot of cool new functions in there that is, uh, I think it's a really neat release. And Isicast now, if you write the support, you can uh, start beta testing that. So that should also be great. Yeah, I think I'm really excited about Isicast. I think it, there's a lot of opportunities that we're going to have to use that. And yeah, though this whole show runs on Isidore. <laughs> so it's, it is a, uh, so oftentimes, you know, we, we're really pushing the outer envelope of what it does. And, it's, uh, it's an incredible package. And so this looks like probably one of their biggest updates so far. So if you haven't seen it, go ahead and uh, check it out. Uh, it's a great, great update. Um, next question. Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas, and here on the panel writes in, Dropbox ends its unlimited option, capping its all-the-space-you-need storage plan to five terabytes after some abused the tier by pooling storage, reselling, and more. Comment. Go, Jonas. This is what happens when companies don't have a sustainable business model. Like there's this thing that happens all the time in startups and especially in tech that like you estimate how much usage a person actually will use. Then you really hope that no one exceeds that estimate in the general audience. And then you say it's unlimited until someone actually tries to use the unlimited storage where at what point you realize, oh, storage actually is expensive and we are being charged for the traffic. And then you decide how long can we keep it running? Because like a lot of people might have the unlimited storage and store 200 gigs where they make a lot of profit. But then there's people that store 10 terabytes on it where they don't make profit. So as soon as that doesn't come out anymore, they will always start charging you uh, for it. It's it's what's going to happen with all these things, and that's why you're going to see a much more metered stuff, especially now, because um, now you can also say, hey, we have metered customers. Um, I've not seen metered billing too much yet, so you'll see it come to Dropbox and all these different providers because stuff is still expensive, and if VC money isn't making tech cheap, you will suddenly start to realize how expensive a lot of stuff is if VC is funding it. 
And the challenge is always when you put something unlimited or anything that's there, you really have to set some outer limits. And and um, and I think that they just didn't get those limits quite right. And so now they have to back away. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, it's just too bad because the users were uh, taking that storage and then reselling it. That's where they really lost out. So yeah. uh, and the we few all abused the many. Yeah. I think some there there could have been some other limits that they could have put on it other than taking away the, the five terabytes. But uh, I, I actually have been trying to take all of my terabytes off of Dropbox for a while, and it's just trying to get it off out of the cloud has been has been the challenge. And so this will probably accelerate. Oh, my, Alex, my get a NAS. Go That's ahead, the way to do it. it yeah, yeah. Uh, go ahead, uh, Jonas. And that's one of the things that Alex just mentioned. If you have a lot of storage in a provider and you think, hey, let's use Dropbox Unlimited to store all our company's data, it's not a backup till you haven't tried to restore that data. So if you have a provider like Backplace that also offer like a lot of storage, they will ship you a drive because they know it's going to take ages for you to download your data. So if you use something like Dropbox right. for your backup, make sure that you also test your retention and like, hey, how do we actually, everything is lost, how we do, how do we get our data back? Because then if something like this happens, you are not like, help, I need to get all my data off before they unalive it. Next question. Graham Cardwell in Belfast, Northern Ireland writes in, how do you extract a .mov file that's embedded in a PowerPoint presentation if you are on a Mac and only have Keynote? Go ahead, John. What's super interesting is I just tried this on my Mac and my PC. So if you take the PPT and just ch copy it, make a duplicate of it, and then change it to a zip file, it doesn't open up on the Mac, but it will open up on a PC. And then all of the files in the, that are embedded in the PPT are there, and you can extract those out. So I is take it, is, the zip. Is it a package? Is, is yeah. it something that you can just right-click on on a PPT and then you can't right-click on the PPT? No. It's not. Got it. So you have to, but if you rename it as zip and yep. open it on a PC, which could yep. be any PC, it could be a yep. really inexpensive one. Yep. Uh, interesting. Well, there you go. There's the there's the way out. Is find someone with a PC, give them a zip file, get that file. Uh, next question. Eric Kurtz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, how does Isadora fit into your production workflow? Go ahead, Jonas. I think there are mainly two ways how you can fit Isadora into a production workflow. In Office Hours, we use the control side of Isadora. So we have a lot of triggers and inputs and universe is sending OSC messages into Isadora. And then we use Isadora as like a compute, a brain that does something. So we give it some idea what we want it to do, and then it calculates, hey, how can I do this? For example, when we say, hey, I want a super source of all people that want to answer a question, we say, give me a super source of all the people that want to answer a question. Isadora calculates, hey, I need these two people here, and then tells the item what to do. So it's a really great for like translation layer of data like that. But then Isadora also has this whole visual interface like we the start in the Isadora lab, we did like, hey, let's try to measure the difference of like a clip. You can feed a multi-view and then like compare it with a static shot of your multi-view to see where a person is. For example, I know that some people automated a church broadcast by that by having a multi-view fed into Isadora. As soon as the priest walks up to the mic, it detects that there's someone in that box and it cuts to there and starts the ceremony and all that. Um, but Isadora also can output video and you can do these graphics like you might have seen on when we did the show with Todd Reynolds 
where we like you take some tracking data and then you generate something. But that's generally two ways that I could see uh, how you use Zotero. And it's really, you know, a very powerful low, low code, you know, so it's a nodal, you know, nodal interface. So it's kind of a, a low code way to build, build a lot of stuff. So if you're not someone who's going to write the code, uh, it gives you many of the logics that, you know, logic uh, oper oper operators that you would need uh, to produce some pretty complex things. And again, this whole show is run on top of it. So it's, uh, it's been really successful for us. Um, next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina, writes in, could Jonas tell us more about his remote multi-viewer solution using Cloudflare? Go, Jonas. So there's a couple of things that came together that make this work really nicely. So Cloudflare has a streaming service that's called Cloudflare Stream. In the past, they have SRT and RTMP ingest. And what they added now is WebRTC ingest. And in the past, WebRTC is one of those things where like everybody implements it a little different. It wasn't like a protocol where you could say, hey, OBS has WebRTC, Cloudflare has WebRTC, it will fit. But now there's a standard called WIP, which means uh, WebRTC HTTP ingest protocol, I think. And basically what they do is the communication between the two clients on like what video format you should send that normally is done over a stun and a relay over a stun server is now done via one HTTP call and it's standardized. So OBS is about to release OBS 30, which adds WIP support, which allows you to just take an NDI feed, the decklink card, whatever you have in OBS insert the WIP IP URL from uh, Cloudflare stream into OBS, click start streaming, and it will connect it there. And then what we have done is we build multi-view web pages that have the egress protocol web, so web uh, RTC HTTP-based egress protocol that allows you to view it in any browser. Right now there's some restrictions, Safari, of course, uh, having some restrictions on the codec that you can use. And uh, if you want to encode AV1 in OBS, you need the right hardware and all that. But it works really great, and we get uh, zoom latency or lower right now in our testing, and it just looks great. Um, and the pricing of Cloudflare Stream is just so attractive. You have around uh, one US dollar for, per thousand minutes watched, and that's almost unbeatable for WebRTC streaming because just the bandwidth costs so much. And uh, yeah, we have it working really well, and uh, it's a great solution. That's great. Uh, next question. Samuel Nordvik writes in from Norway, Digital Bird just launched the DB3, a semi-DIY pan-tilt head that's Visca controllable. It can be built for around 500 USD with a 3D printer and a kit, including a lot of the key parts. Is anyone else excited? Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, not that excited. It's uh, fairly complex. It's kind of like for building motion control on your uh, by yourself. And there, there's their uh, look at their mini jib rig. It's kind of clunky looking. Uh, it's pretty big and and uh, has real big motors that are attached, servo motors that are attached to the lens for doing uh, <clears throat> focus and zoom. And apparently, it has a motorized jib arm there and the one in the middle. So. Um, Although it's fairly cheap, $314 for the kit for that jib arm, I don't know if I'd want... That seems like a major project with a lot of 3D printing and a lot of assembly. And I guess they wrote the software to do the interfaces with and interface to all the stepper motors. But uh, looks like a good project. Can we do a second hour project on a civil digital bird, Alex? When Courtney says it's complicated to build, I go, oh, no. <laughs> all right, next question. <laughs> 
Douglas Carmichael writes in, uh, Zoom CEO Eric Yan uh, revealed a leaked in a leaked meeting that remote work doesn't build trust. Thoughts? I go ahead, Jonas. I think for remote work to work, you need a certain amount of trust in the people that are not close. And I think for some people, it might feel like it's harder to build that trust and it takes longer to build that trust because you don't have as many viewpoints into the work. Like if I'm a manager and I have a cubicle, I can just walk along while I go uh, grab a water. I can see if everybody is working or if it looks like they're working, but if they're all remote, you're pretty isolated. So I think he's noticing an issue that Zoom maybe want to like try to solve. But there's a certain amount of trust required when you work remotely. And then when you have someone you can trust, it works great. Like if I know my employee is going to just do the same work that they do on site remotely, there's no problem with them working remotely. It might be hard to acquire the trust. And some people might not start out giving everyone trust till it's unproven, but they start out saying, hey, you have to earn your trust with me. And I have to see that you do your work first. And that might be harder to see what are they doing, how they are they using their time remotely without going too deep into their privacy. You go, Jason. I feel like Eric may very well be the authority on how to make a great video platform, but he, he, he's probably not the authority that I would listen to about what this product can do. So, you know, I would just keep that with a grain of salt. Hey, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I've, I've worked in large companies like Semitech where it's cubicle after cubicle. And the ideal to me would be to have both in one place, have, have Zoom video conferencing and the human contact all in one package. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that there's, there's definitely value of getting together. I just don't know if you have to do it all the time. Like, I think that the thing is, is that I think that we get into this thing like, oh, everybody has to come in for two days a week or three days a week and, you know, turn their whole life inside out. You know, the companies that I've seen that have been really successful at this have, they build opportunities for people to come into the office. So it's more carrot less stick, you know, and they go, you know, the, the companies that, that I've seen that do this, that have been, most of them were remote before COVID. Like they've been doing this for a decade or two decades. And what they've and, and where what they've learned, I think they're a little ahead of where companies are right now, even Zoom, which is that they everyone's working out of their home. They expect everybody to have a room that is their office. You know, like so whatever you're doing, it's not like they don't want to see your bedroom. They don't want to see like you're taking this seriously. You're working out of your house. Whatever's behind you, they expect it to be what you're doing. Uh, or, or, you know, so you're, you're taking it, you know, that, that it's, it is, feels like an office. It may not be an office, but what's behind you feels like an office. It's not blurred backgrounds. It's not other things no, or logos. That's all like new COVID, you know, so it's kind of like new, new money and old money, you know, new, new, uh, um, you know, new remote is, you know, blurred backgrounds and, and, you know, weird things keyed over them. Old remote is they've, built themselves into a system that works, you know, and, and so, but what they do is that monthly there's like regional stuff, you know, like in the same city, people get together, there's like a, you know, TGIF somewhere, or there's something, there's gatherings that are available. Um, you know, quarterly, they either go national or even international. And then yearly, they really do something where they bring everybody together at some remote because they and the, and the way they talk about it a lot of times is that they saved a lot of money by not having these offices and they spend that money by giving people opportunities to come in. And there are places in the offices that people can just come in whenever they want. If someone wants to come into one of their offices, they can. And so there's open spaces for them to come in and work if they and there's conference rooms. And you can just see that's a kind of a mature 
virtual company, you know, and the, I think that even Zoom is not really a mature virtual company, even though they, they gave them the tools to do that. Um, you know, when you, when you, um, you know, they're just, they're not, they're not there yet. Um, and so I think that, um, but I think that the, there's a lot of companies that have done this and they've done this for a long time and they figured it out and they have no need. You talk to them and they would never go to uh, having an office again, you know, like they, you know, and they still get to, and they, now they spend, they love Zoom because they spend, you know, a lot of them were on WebEx or Zoom or whatever, but they spend it all day talking to each other, you know, and they're constantly in, interacting with each other. And they, a lot of times they're leaving those windows, three or four of them are leaving a, Hangout or a WebEx or a Zoom open all day, like while they're talking, so they can talk as if they were in two different offices. But anytime they want to turn that that open office, that virtual open office off, they just hit mute. <laughs> like they don't have to go find somewhere to take a call, you know. And you know, again, this comes back to all those cubicles and all that open office stuff was a disaster, you know. And people and nobody liked it. Like nobody I know enjoyed going into that environment, you know. And so. Um, you know, and I, and, you know, the, and so the thing is, is that that's the, the, that, that's the problem. You know, companies have to re, refocus that and giving people great places to go in the office, like giving them a place that is, they have their own little space. They can jump into virtual meetings or be in physical meetings. They get to see folks, the, they've got good lunches. They've got things, things that handle their, their needs on a daily basis, which a lot of the companies have gotten good at. But the big, big thing is they have their own personal space and they can come and go as they want. You'd find a lot more people would come in, but going like choosing to, to drive for an hour and a half to sit in, an, in cubicles or an open office doing the exact same thing you could do at home is really frustrating. And what you're going to see and what we already see is companies like Dropbox, which we talked about earlier, and a, and, and a couple of the other companies, what they're doing is they're just scraping that talent off of the, they're, they're, they're saying you can do whatever you want. And they're just scraping some of the best talent out of these companies because people are willing to work for less if they don't have to drive. You know, and it's just, it's, it's, it is a disastrous problem for big companies to say you have to come back in because people aren't quitting immediately, but they're they're prepping their LinkedIn, they're going to more mixers, they're doing all the stuff, they're ready to leave, you know, and that's the, and, and that's a horrible place to have your employees, you know, and so the, com the companies that don't figure this out fast enough are just going to slowly, you know, bleed out a lot of their talent. Next question. John Fultz in Sealands Grove, Pennsylvania writes in, yesterday, a two-channel AVIO Dante device stopped working. I see that the, I see it on the network, but it won't connect to other devices using controller boxed uh, don't turn green i rebooted swapped cables and moved to a different jack is it dead go jason my first thought is that um whatever is in control of your dante array should probably be rebooted your switch should be rebooted and then you should do a hard reboot on the avio device and if that really doesn't do it then i would contact their support their their warranty is pretty good next question Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, should I consider replacing OBS or vMix with Isadora? Go ahead, Jonas. I, it really depends on what you're using OBS or vMix for. If you're using OBS or vMix for doing, I did some like projection mapping in OBS when we had like no budget and like a Beamer and OBS and a laptop. I used OBS and you could like do it that way or... If you use vMix to play something out, uh, Isadora might work for one project. We replaced an OBS playout with Isadora because Isadora allowed us to customize it. So there was a loop and it would only cut or go to the next thing at the end of the loop. So it always was seamless going from like a 
idle loop to a reveal a graphic loop back to an idle loop. But like for streaming or encoding or video switching, I think you would need to put a lot of work into Isadora before you can get all the functions from something like OBS or vMix. But with EasyCast, it might make more sense. And I think they work better together than against each other. Like uh, Isadora can output an NDI that OBS or vMix then captures as a scene, and then you can stream it from there. I, we always like to separate our encodes from the software that is generating it. Go to Alex. Well, Eric, I've had the same internal debate myself many times. In the you know, the, it, this kind of stuff often comes up. Do, should I use product A or product B? The question I always ask myself is, what is this product doing well, and what is it not doing well? Is there something that OBS or VMix is not doing for you? Are you limited? Assuming that the products are stable for you, and assuming that you know them inside and out, what is it not doing for you? And that's when you should maybe consider moving to another product. Isadora is very capable, very powerful. So that's what you really want to ask yourself. Next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes in, would building a remote kit with extensive networking, how do you handle an OOB connection to the router and switches? Second NICs on a machine, separate VLAN? Go ahead, John. Boy, in the old day, OOB was totally out of band. So in the old days, we used to use dial-up. We'd have dial-up connections. Some of the old routers had dial-up built in. They had modem built in so you could use out of band, dial into the router, and then rebooted or issue iOS iOS commands Cisco's um, command language right uh, but out of band needs to be completely out of band it doesn't need to be on the same VLAN because if that router goes down you're you're out of luck so a completely redundant network or something completely out of band maybe a wireless some people use wireless as out of band just to connect to issue commands go ahead Jonas so out of band like John described this basically how do you control something if your primary network doesn't work. So let's say you have a rack, remote production rack that gets rolled into a venue. And as soon as you plug it into the venue, somehow the venue detects you have a switch or a router and they block that port because the IT decided that's the wise thing to do. How do you now get into the router to even know that the van isn't working? One of the things that we use is um, you, if you use a pebbling, for example, you can have an LTE connection. And even if it's only Edge, one of the things our peplings allow us to do is send them an, e an SMS with commands to execute. And I can limit that to a certain amount of uh, known good uh, phone numbers that can send those SMS. So I can say, hey, actually restart, actually forgot that van and go over to LTE so I can connect to it. One thing in out of band in our industry that also a lot of people forget is USB. Because an ATEM, for an ATEM, you can use a network, but then if you also have a way to access its USB and control it over that way, now you have a second method of controlling that, even if the ATEM's network stack crash, for example. And that's one of the things that actually a lot of people also forget is while they set their remote kit up, they connect over USB and everything is easy. Then they switch over to network, test if everything works and go on. But then Blackmagic only allows you to change certain settings over USB. So that's definitely something I would factor in into my builds to make sure that if your network is failing or if you have a network failure, you can still get to your devices if they have USB over that and make sure that you can get to your router remotely over a secondary connection like LTE, SMS, something like that. 
and then also make sure that you actually have um, monitoring that tells you there is a failure in the primary network that's going to require you to use the out-of-band management. Yeah, I mean, for, for most of our, almost all of our smaller remote kits use the, um, the, Mer the Meraki Z3s, and then we also use um, larger systems like that. And we use, for the larger systems, we have peplinks that are tied into to cell cellular, and the Meraki's manage the entire local network. Um, and what really works well for us is that, that those, you know, everything's been registered into those. So we know a switcher is always the same IP as soon as you tell me what the what the kit number is, because um, we had at one time about 10 kits floating around the world somewhere. And so you just say, what kit is it? And the kit number is written on everything. So you just go, you're, you're in kit eight. Now I know what all the IPs are for every piece of hardware that's in there. Um, and, um, and that was a really seamless way for us to, us to work. Uh, next question. Tommy Chance in St. Paul, Minnesota writes in, I just split my house of worship audio to an XR18 for the webcast audio. I have the XLR connections into a Sony XDCAM EX to feed the A10 Mini Pro that is connected to a different laptop. Is that the best way to do it? Go ahead, Courtney. I'd say probably. I think if you take the XLR outputs out of the XR18 and into the uh, Sony webcam, just make sure the inputs on the webcam are set to line level input if you're taking the line outs, the balanced line outs out of the XR18 and turn off 48 volt phantom uh, just so it doesn't interfere. And uh, th then I would suggest plugging that um, the XDR, I mean, the X, uh, XD cam into uh, input one on your mini. And that way uh, it will use that for synchronization for the other inputs. And that way all the audio and video should stay in sync. Next question. Frequent panelist and current frequent flyer, Jeffrey Powers writes in, watching office hours right now from my Delta flight. Wi-Fi allowed me to watch as we took off without pause. Of course, you cannot zoom on a public flight, but could office hours from a private plane be in the future? Asking from a plane. Go ahead, Courtney. As long as that plane is circling above a major metropolitan city, uh, it might work for you because a lot of the planes use uh, cell towers to achieve Wi-Fi connection and the, the bigger planes use satellites. Uh, and the satellite connection is a bit iffy, especially if you're flying over the ocean where there are no cell towers. Uh, so it depends on where you are and what type of connection the plane is using. Usually usually the uplink speed is not very good on on uh, planes, you'll get better downlinks. So you'll be able to stream something uh, down, but you may not be able to send something up because it just doesn't have the bandwidth with the satellites. And, the, and it's switching satellites all the time. So there's going to be buffer interruptions and buffer overruns, things like that. So it's, it's intermittent. And depending upon the number of people that are on a commercial plane, uh, how many people are using the Wi-Fi uh, makes a big difference as, as to what your connection is like. Yeah, the more expensive the Wi-Fi, the better it works because it just cuts people out of that of that process. People make a calculation of, oh, I don't want to spend thirty dollars on this, and so that means that if you spend thirty dollars, you'll have a better chance of it actually working. Um, we've done tests over the last ten years, and we've we've done things. We've never done it for a show, but we have had people on comms, like on on um, Agent IC, you know, on the plane. You know, we 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 actually did one where we did Agent IC from plane to plane. Both of us were on different flights. And we realized we're both in the air. So we jumped on and started doing comms back and forth. Uh, we've switched switchers uh, from the plane. <laughs> so again, to go back to the Meraki, we signed in, you know, we, we turned on the VPN, uh, the Meraki VPN on our laptop, and we're able to get to our switchers and start switching to show, not 
in, you know, in a, in a early rehearsal at a location to see if it actually worked and it worked fine. Um, so the, you know, there's a lot you can get done with the plane. Um, the big problem really gets into exactly what Courtney said is that a lot of the, um, a lot of them are, are still uh, terrestrial based. And so they still have to come back down again. Uh, we had, we were trying to stream from a, a, a G4, um, a Gulf stream, um, about 150 miles off of Portland. And that did not turn out well, just because we couldn't get, we were too far away from the, from the south, from the towers to, to pull that off. Uh, but we, uh, more of these airlines are, uh, you know, starting to add Starlink to their, their services. And as they add more Starlink to the services, you'll probably see more and more bandwidth, um, being available. Um, I, I think I just, I was looking at something where they're adding multiple Starlinks to it, to, to allow it to have failover on the, on the roof of the, of the airplane. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see how that goes, but that seems to have made a pretty big difference. You still need a lot of bandwidth because you have a whole, uh, you have an entire, um, galley full of people that may want to use it. So that's still the challenge is just overall, uh, input and output. Uh, next question. Foon Sok Dorje writes in from Dharamsala, India, while filming in a classroom today at a shutter speed of 125th and 150th, we noticed a flicker on the screen through the camera. After changing the shutter speed to 160th, the flicker vanished. That's when we got confused. Equipment in India is at 50 hertz. Please explain. Go ahead, Jonas. So what you a couple things. So what you're trying to do is uh, stay at 50 hertz because that's where your lights would flicker. The 50 hertz is the uh, DC frequency of your electricity and only devices that use that frequency for something, for example, a light bulb would have that. If we now look at like more modern tech like LEDs or something that is AC powered that gets converted, now it's running on a different thing. What one of the issues you run into with LEDs like these behind me is that they use something called PA pulse width modulation to control how bright those lights are. They're basically turning it on and off really fast. And what you might see is that your screen is at a 60 hertz refresh rate, but that has nothing to do with what the power it is because your screen itself is going to have a DC to AC conversion and that's going to like not subtracting to the same hertz of your power grid. So sometimes we have found that if you film a screen at 90 hertz, you might need to tweak your um, it to even something more weirder. So like it's a great starting point to use the net frequency of your country. But then depending on what you film, you might need to change that. If there's like weird LED stripes that also get modulated, um, if you want to see something really funky, try to film an Atom Mini Extreme or any of the Atoms and then control the lights on the buttons and you'll see them flashing from left to right, from right to left, depending on uh, what setting there are because that is how the power gets turned on and off on those. Um, so yeah, great thought with the 50 hertz, but depending on your device, it might be on a different frequency and might require you to use a different frequency. Good, Courtney. Yeah, Jonas covered it pretty well. It's it's a lot of times the it depends on the screen that you're shooting, whether it has a, a, flu, a, a compact fluorescent backlights or LED backlights, and a lot of times they run at uh, to to accomplish local area dimming or just uh, brightness control, LED backlight control. They will take that. Uh, they will take the AC that comes in, convert it to DC, and then that DC goes back to a 
uh, a board inside the TV that converts it back to pulse width modulated AC uh, to control the brightness of the LEDs. And it may be generating its own frequency and not pulling its frequency from the house, uh, you know, from the input frequency of the AC that's there. So it may be beating against whatever your camera sample rate is of your shutter. You can adjust your shutter speed to get rid of it, which just looks like what you did when you adjusted it to a 60th of a second. And a lot of times they will default to a 60th of a second because it's a little more common and, and in the U.S. In some places, it'll it'll have a, a setting in the software, whether you want to make it uh, flicker, called flicker removal, and you can set it to 50, 50 hertz or 60 hertz and so it may be a setting in that tv for flicker removal so take a look at that as well next question graham cardwell in belfast northern ireland writes in i'm editing a series of conference talks one of the speakers is very animated and the video transitions are very obvious as a result despite my best efforts any tips or hints for making the jump cuts look less jarring good courtney uh, blow them up and get in tighter for your cut. If you're jumping from the same same size frame to the same size frame and it, cutting something out, it's going to be the jump cuts are going to be really obvious. If you don't have coverage for another angle, so if you can't cut from camera to camera, if you've only got one camera covering your speaker, for example, uh, blow it up about 10% or 20% so you go in a little tighter and that way you can hide their extremities if their arms are moving around. Uh, and it makes jump cuts a little less jarring because you're used to seeing cuts from wide to close. And that that uh, detracts from the fact that you've cut something out and it makes a little, the transitions a little smoother, although it will get a little grainier. If you've got 4K footage and you're outputting 1080p, it's very easy to do that then. Yeah, this is a great example of why you want to shoot at a higher resolution than what you're using. You may not have that luxury right now, but that's something you want to look at um, is definitely pushing it. I usually go more than that. I usually jump at least 30% to make sure it doesn't feel at all like a jump cut, um, you know, if I'm going to scale it up. Uh, the other thing you can do is look at optical flow solutions. Um, you know, actually, Adobe, I think, has some transition solutions uh, for this. If it's too much, it won't work. But Adobe has done some pretty good work at blending, you know, jump cuts back into some Something normal. Now, the reality is, is that if you're if you're sending it out to a YouTube generation, they won't notice at all uh, all the jump cuts because they're they're used to the they're used to the abuse. So um, so I think that that's you know, but it is a good example of why we also oftentimes have a second camera. The other thing you can do is, of course, if they have slide a slide deck, you can use the slide deck as to paper over the edits. So throw those images up for a little while and make those cuts, and then and do it. And those are the most traditional ways of covering uh, your your cuts. Um, next question. Bo Cordell in Charleston, South Carolina writes in, how do you maintain documentation of your networking infrastructure? Do you use spreadsheets or a more holistic solution like NetBox? Go ahead, Jonas. We tend to use uh, spreadsheets and a lot of common sense. So it gets really complicated if you have multiple clients and then you have a network that connects all the clients and then some clients might already have the IP side of set, but really think about where a device is and where it travels. So sometimes if you have like an on in studio network that is different from your like remote network, be sure to also document that. And then most of the stuff we use peplings a lot. So I have a list of all my devices in in control, which is the remote control feature. And then I also have a list of like, this device should be here. And if a we finish a remote studio, a client also gets documentation with, hey, DHCP can only give out IP addresses from zero to 200. 
and then everything above 200 is managed by us and it's in this list so like the atm is a 201 the video hub is at 202 and something like that so if you segment your network out like that already then you have a couple more devices that you can have on static and then like that's how we um documented we haven't done anything more complicated yet but the networks that we have tend to be pretty segmented so one spreadsheet covers it pretty well for that client and then we have our special access networks that might be a little more complicated good paul yeah i have a uh, netgear c7800 it's called it's a uh, all-in-one cable modem and uh, router and it has very detailed reports. So I just highlight the each report, like like one report shows every device on my network. So I'll copy that and paste it into a Google Sheet. And then I also have a 48-port switch that does the same thing. It's a smart switch, so it'll I can look at it, copy and paste the from there onto onto a Google Sheet and. Yeah. Uh, and- and, and what's but the, really but the netbox looks great. I, I, looks like I, what's really solution. interesting is that, that, that a lot of us, uh, you know, we'd love to say that we use something more complex, but almost all of us come back to both. You'll see, just come back to some kind of uh, spreadsheet uh, of, of the ins and outs of that. Yeah, so it's it's good. Uh, next question, Alexander Knight in Poor Coquitlam, uh, BC, Canada. I just got a Stream Deck XL and have installed companion running in native mode, I noticed today the Stream Deck was not working and shows a disconnected in companion. Suggestions on how to resolve this? Mac OS Ventura, M2, Mac Mini. Go ahead, Jonas. Can you hear me, Jonas? Yeah, sorry. So what you're probably running into is if you have the native Stream Deck software and you want to use companion as well, you're going to need to... enable the companion module uh, mode in companion that then allows you to use the companion module on the native stream deck so you can give certain buttons to companion you can say hey yes you can actually have a profile so what i mostly have is i have a normal stream deck and if i press a button it jumps over to companion and now the whole stream deck is owned by a companion but what you can also do is you can have specific buttons from companion so like page two bank five as an example and put those uh, on a different location on your stream deck it gets a little more complicated to um manage that but that's how i would do it because companion will detect if the native stream deck app is running and then just says hey we don't want to interfere with that Let's do the other thing, but you need do need to enable that manually. Go ahead, Alex. So I close the Stream Deck app. It is not running in my menu bar, but is there something more that I need to do? Because it is. I did set up Companion running in native mode. Um, is there maybe some kind of process that that I have to shut down? Yeah, you, you have to uninstall the app, uninstall it completely. You just need to actually close it. Like if you minimize it, it will still be in your taskbar. If you right click on that and then you can click close. And what you then need to go is you need to go into companion and say rescan USB. And that should bring it up um, because they will not automatically rescan USB because that's an extensive, uh, expensive operation that might impact the run of your show if you rely on companion working smoothly. Jason? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Jonas. I, I just spoke over you. Um, the, the issue here is that there are two ways to do it. It has to be completely unloaded from the Native Companion app, um, or I'm sorry, from the Stream Deck app, or the Stream Deck plugin needs to be loaded, and then the two need to be recognized as separate. Um, it, it can be done either way. As far as I'm concerned, I like Stream Decks, and I have a lot of them, and I, I try to just never let the two coexist on one system if I can. Next question. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, and here on the panel, writes in, Are robot pets finally ready for prime time? Check out this not-too-wildly-priced robot dog. Good, Paul, real quick. Yeah, this is this looks every bit as good as the uh, the the robot dogs were seen, and they they took one of these and put it in the Sydney Zoo, and it held its own with the robots. They're around two or three thousand, but the shipping costs are real high from China. It looks amazing. Did did an amazing job sorry, with I'm the sorry. cheetahs and lions. I can understand having robot dogs that are like guard dogs or something like that, but just having robot dogs is I think it's just crazy. Um, next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California writes in, what is the best value V-mount battery? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't say this from experience, but I just shopped around. This this company called GVM, uh, Great Value Marketing or something, has been coming onto the market with a lot of Chinese-made lower price. They're very price competitive. Here's a $124 V-mount battery, but it's only uh, 95 amp hours or watt hours. So be careful uh, when you're shopping for these. They may be uh, budget priced, but then look at the amount of current that the battery is carrying because it may not have as many cells inside of it as uh, a competitor battery that may be priced twice as high. So uh, make sure it has enough current to deliver uh, to whatever you're going to be powering out of. But, uh, you know, GVM, I've looked across the the different prices and they seem to have some of the lowest prices, but I can't vouch for their reliability. Jonas? I use these uh, Patona and what's really a couple things you need to look at when buying your V-mount batteries to make sure you can use them in the different use cases. This is one that comes with a D-tap, but also a USB, and it even has a little power meter to tell you, oh, this is actually the full one and not the empty one. And it's under uh, 100 watt hours, which is important if you ever want to like fly with that kit because most airlines only allow you to travel with batteries that are under 100 watt hours. So these are what I bought for IBC because they're that, uh, conveniently at 95 watt hours. Give me the DTAP that allows me to hook it up to all my devices, my routers, my bonding devices. Um, yeah, and in Germany, a lot of people that I know use this brand and I, we use it and it works great. What's the price on that 95 yeah, watt yeah. hour? Are you asking? I, I will look it up. <laughs> yeah, while he's looking question. it up, while he's looking it up, the the uh, I I don't know if mine are necessarily the cost. I've kind of standardized the GVMs are the ones that I had in the past. Um, I have uh, I've kind of centralized around the small rig ones. They're not the least expensive version. There's the small rig ninety nine V mounts, um, and they are conveniently right under the hundred. Um, you know, the hundred watt hours uh, that are there. Um, these have. Um, the these have a nice little screen on the back that tells you everything that's pulling and what it's pulling at every at every uh, location. So not just an overall one, but it tells you every device and what it's doing. It's got um, two barrels, uh, two U- a USB C, USB A, and DTAP on the on the battery. Um, and uh, and so it's I find it to be a really nice battery to work with. I've got three of them now. Um, and then what I can also do is take the small rig. 
um, they have a V mount mount for your um, for your um, system. It's just it's, it's a freestanding one that's designed to go on rails. And I sometimes just take the rail part off and just put it on top of that battery, which gives me another two barrels and a DTAP and a USB A. So now I have this little box that has an, a ton of I/O going in and out of it. Now the you know, and, and, and that has turned out to be super useful for our rigs. Um, I use these little batteries in a lot of different places. Um, and I've been, I've been really happy with them, but they are not the cheapest solution. They are about $240 each, I think are the 99s. Um, if you aren't flying, I have a set of the GVMs, but they're bigger ones. And if you're not flying, it's good to have ones around that you can drive with or that you can ship that are much bigger um, so that you have more time um, to run during a show. A lot of times we've used those to power time lapses and stuff like that, where we just hook it up there and we, we pack them together and we, it can run for days uh, without, without having to go back to it. Jonas, did you get that price on that? On that yes. Yeah, so they are on sale right now for 109 euros in Germany and normally around 160 euros. Yep. What's really funny is the Amazon description. I don't know who does these, but it's, <laughs> and I'll paraphrase it because it's in German, but they say it's a Pantona premium V-mount replaces this and the Sony with that. And then they say uh, 95 watt hours. So it is under the magic 100 watt hours that you need in Europe to fly with them. Yeah. Just, and that's, and I think it's pretty much the magic 100 yeah. watt hours. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, uh, and I think it's pretty much international now that those are the, that's the limit on those batteries. Um, that, yeah. that we, up until only a couple of years ago, we could take almost anything, but I think that's just been, there's been a lot of battery issues where they short out and catch fire and, that's, that's no fun for anyone. So I think that's that's where that got kind of pushed back. Um, a quick reminder, of course, you can still probably a little time. You can ask questions if before the end of the hour um, and make sure to vote on those questions because I don't know if we'll get all the way to the end um, today. So uh, vote on the questions and help us order keep these in order. Next question. Patrick Shones in Little Rock, Arkansas writes in looking for suggestions for software that can play out a growing record file while it's being recorded. Trying to do a time slip between two venues sharing a common keynote speaker while each venue has its own hosts and musicians. Yeah, so there's 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 a limited number of, of things that can work here. Um, you know, uh, New Tech makes a thing called Three Play, which is designed to do this. The uh, there's Emery Play from Softron, and then finally there is an EBS, which is the thing that everybody uses to do that. Um, it's hard to, to you know the it's the playback that's the hard part there. So Softron Record and a couple other softwares will record a a, a uh, growing file that you can edit, but trying to play it back at the same time that you're, that you're doing that um, seamlessly tends to be a bit of a challenge. Go ahead, Jonas. So churches have been doing this a lot and they use something called Resi, which they have a proprietary encoder and decoder model that allows you to delay by up to 30 minutes your live stream and like mm -hmm. have a huge delay. Uh, what we have done... Um, for a wedding where the reception was first and then there was an hour break while everybody goes to the next thing where we wanted to play out the reception. You can use vMix as well because vMix's replay will allow you to load it in and then just start your playhead an hour later. So that way we had a growing file recording into vMix replay and then played it out of vMix replay. The great thing is vMix supports SRT for that as well. So we just SRT'd it up to the cloud and then had it uh, being sent down. We You can have it set being sent down with SRT again, just with the 30 minutes delayed. And what's the cool thing with that is you really have a lot of control still 
because one of the things that is um, with cheaper solutions, like some people might say, hey, use uh, NGX RTMP and like dump all your frames here and then read them off again 30 minutes later. The most painful thing if you ever watch eSports is when that fails and the whole Twitch chat is ruthless. Everybody just, the whole chat is full with next slide, please commenting on it being a slideshow because if you get their fps wrong or there's like a hiccup suddenly you will only get frame after frame and the worst part is you can't do anything for the next 30 minutes because you're still in that buffer so like really a replay solution is the great solution here because you still have the control you can still pick it up you can otherwise you'll you'll hate it it's it's one of the worst things if you have a big buffer and you just can't do anything because you have the buffer there and whatever you do will be there for the next 30 minutes it's really stressful go ahead Courtney yeah this is a tough programming issue to try and do a growing file size because uh, you have to update the the size of the file that's stored in the first few bytes of the file and that has to be updated continuously because then your playback software will know will not know how big the file is to figure out things like you know showing you where you are within the file et cetera within timeline so that's why uh, programs like EVS have a fixed uh a fixed file it's just one big file they keep recording over and over again so you have to have a, a fixed file size that just records circularly in and when it hits the end of that file it, it starts putting data right back at the beginning of the file but the file size itself on the hard drive never changes so that's the difficulty in doing something that can record and play back at the same time and it usually will start recording over itself after the fixed size is run out and in evs that's usually 24 hours yeah. of record time somewhere between 18 and 72 hours how much money you have in your wallet yes. exactly i mean evs's are really expensive uh to rent an evs and have an operator work on a show is about six to eight thousand dollars you know so that's the you know so it might be a hundred and twenty thousand to buy one or 150 thousand but we bring them in for shows relatively often um and that's a, that's for three or four days so that you have set up and rehearsal and everything else the evs's run about fifteen hundred dollars a day on a three-day week so those those are about the the range and then you just have to you have to have an operator that knows how to use it. Do not rent an EBS and think that you're going to figure it out. It's like a, it's its own world. It takes an EBS operator a couple of years to be useful. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, and, uh, uh, Robert Green, who sometimes shows up in, in our shows, is an EVS operator. So if you see him pop up, you can ask EVS questions. Um, you know, for I play with a lot of other things, but for any show that I'm getting paid for, I bring an EVS in for replay, you know, for time slipping. And and so the and so the time slipping there is kind of magical because you can have multiple, you can have up to 16, I think 16 channels coming in. Um, we usually typically get a six channel one, but that means you have multiple shows and multiple things going on. And we slip a lot of times what we we do is we use it at conferences to slip time so we can you know if someone might be starting two minutes late or three minutes early or whatever it is and we slip all those times and then for our studio shots we don't have to come to so folks live we come right before live and just go hey just start when you're ready and they just we just start rolling down if we don't get it right we just do it again and we're usually you know a couple minutes before the before we have to be live um, for those things and so it's it's really um, it gives you a lot of creature comforts and it's rock solid if you have a, it, it is tricky to set up because it really needs Genlock. It needs everything. Like it is a broadcast tool. Um, but we find that event companies who are spending millions of dollars on our events, we noticed that they just didn't even know an EVS exists. <laughs> like they, that's not what they use. They use, you know, lots of other tools. And once you know that it exists and you have the budget to do that kind of thing, as soon as you know, it's six to $8,000 for that week with the operator, people oftentimes 
figure it out because it's uh, because it's a really great tool to have. Uh, next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut writes in, is there a reliable way for Isadora to send a stage as AV1 via SRT, Wrist, or Zixi? You know, I, I think that AV1 is still kind of an early, uh, I don't know if it's supporting AV1 specifically. Uh, I know it's a pretty early um, uh, pr- product right now. Of course, it's going to take over, but uh, for a variety of reasons. But go ahead, Jonas. I think this is a really great case for where you want the feed to be extracted outside of Isadora, have a program like OBS that can deal with weird codecs right now because AV1 is still weird. You need to have a lot of support to be able to encode it live and then send it off over SRT, RIST, or 60. One cool thing with 60, if you wanted to use that, is um, if you're an AWS Media Connect customer, there's a 60 sender you can use for free to send to AWS Media Connect, and then you can distribute it to all the people that uh, want 60 from there, which is a really cheap way to get access to 60. So you then just send, I think it's a TS, uh, MPEG TS stream that you send to the sender and then that sends it to AWS over 60 and then you can uh, have your own 60 feed distribute that to all the different um, whoever you need to distribute it to I'm and I'm not sure if 60 will deal with AV1 as well I don't have much experience with 60 but with SRT shouldn't be any issue to just put AV1 into there and then uh, decode it on the other end and uh, OBS will support that use case Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. writes in, I was just setting up registration for a webinar for a client on my Zoom account, and it appears Zoom has removed the ability to add custom branding to different webinars. The ability to upload a banner logo is gone. Any ideas on what happened? I don't, I don't know. I'm sure that we. you probably have access to it if you have an event license. <laughs> so I'm sorry I for was. me. Me being bitter, but uh, but I have a feeling that that got moved to uh, if you if I'm sure that your webinar is capable of it. If you have an event license, a lot of things are getting buried into the event event license process, um, and it's kind of it's part of why we don't use webinar that much anymore. <laughs> so so anyway, so uh, so that's the I mean that's the the problem. I think that that there's an attempt to create a new revenue center and that attempt has been not great for a lot of us and that's it's hard for any company to figure this out i think that one of the problems is is that a lot of companies get the webinar part for free and so it's there's nowhere to go with it um you know and so i think that that's the that's the real issue there but i i would probably inquire among your rep but i think that that's probably where where it went um i don't know that for sure because again we haven't used it for a while uh next question John Agapados in Sydney, Australia writes in, recommendations on a simple asset management app to log and label about 60 devices. It would be great if you could scan devices with your phone and generate a barcode. Uh, Go ahead, Jason. Um, My thought on this one is that um, the very best way to do this is with a spreadsheet. I I know that seems lame. I'm sure there are better apps. But um, if you have a high-end labeler, it will generate barcodes all by itself. And I would just move the assets that you need into um, into CRT, um, or no, CSV, sorry, comma separates values in a spreadsheet and um, use something like QR Factory to just turn around the barcodes and then print it into a template. You know, of all the things that we used to use, we used to have what use this in our office where we print a lot of QR codes uh, for things, and we connected them all to uh, a barcode. 
barcode reader that happened to do QR codes as well, because we wanted to make sure that we did it with a phone. We can do it with a phone or with the reader. The reader was a little bit faster. Uh, we use FileMaker. There's a bunch of plugins for FileMaker that will do this uh, really, really well. Um, it's probably the number one use of FileMaker that we had for quite some time was to um, uh, to make that actually happen. So so I think that that, and that worked really well. We would check everything out. Oftentimes there was hundreds of items. We'd check every, everything out on the way out, check it all back in when it came back in, and then <laughs> figure out what happened to that. Um, that one to six uh, SDI distro, which is the one that's always seemed to get lost somewhere in <laughs> a little box. And it would always end up somewhere in somebody. And the key is to continue to put addresses and phone numbers. You'd be surprised at how much stuff you get back from other production companies if you just put the address and phone number. Uh, next question. Paul Wall, who's in Austin, Texas, writes in, Reddit is launching the Mod Helper program to reward moderators who offer helpful advice to other moderators, along with an updated moderator help setter. Go ahead, Paul, real quick. Yeah, uh, Reddit's in turmoil. They 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 raised the price of their APIs, made it harder for moderators. The moderators started taking their Reddit's private. Now they're giving like virtual trophies and things. I don't think it's going to work. Sometimes Reddit has some very useful information. I hope they get all this sorted out. Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, in an article about Thursday Night Football, they mentioned using proprietary AWS software to enable streaming via UDP instead of HLS and thus reducing latency. Is this specific to TNF or available to all AWS customers? Go, Jonas. Yes, it is specific to TNF. Uh, if you want to look into the protocol, look into... I'm assuming it's SYE that they bought and acquired. It's a streaming protocol that they acquired that is based on UDP. But also, AWS is really great at their business, so they have a done-for-you solution if you're as big as Thursday uh, Night Football that is, hey, we'll handle everything for you. Um, you can build a lot of this yourself with uh, Media Live, Media Package, and all those services. Or, or um, if you want a simple version of this, AWS IVS, which is like their um, CDN streaming solution as a service, now also came out with an ultra-low latency, uh, I think it's 200 to 300 milliseconds delivery to up to 10,000 people. Um, that is probably based on RebRTC or not on SYE, but that is the direction where you see uh, AWS goes. It first is with them. Then it goes into the more custom uh, things like Media Live, Media Connect, uh, Media Package, and then it somehow ends up in IVS. And if you want to learn more about IVS, if you go to IVS.rocks, you'll see all kinds of demos of that and uh, pricing and all that. And a quick reminder uh, that uh, we've got a lot coming up. The weekend is nice and usually for us is a little, little bit more relaxed. We've got two hours of uh, Q&A tomorrow on Saturday and then more of our introspection on Sunday. Uh, and usually that's if you want to ask inside baseball questions about office hours or sometimes about the industry. Uh, we tend to chew on things a little bit more on Sunday, so I highly recommend uh, checking that out. Um, and then Saturday, of course, is just two hours, just two hours of, um, of Q&A. So, um, so definitely join us for that. Uh, next week, we have um, a pretty good week. Uh, just a couple things to remind you of is that on Tuesdays, we have a show workshop. And this is really an opportunity for, um, for all of you to um, anybody who wants to be a panelist, who wants to be a reader, wants to be a host, or wants to try out what that looks like, uh, it's at noon on Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. 
um, Eastern Standard Time. So that is a, that's a great way for you to kind of come in and check that out. We've got Squares TV is doing an application lab on Wednesday. That's at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. And uh, there is the conversation with Tony Mobley's behind the scenes is at 4 p.m. on uh, Pacific Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And then um, we are just, we are bringing back, uh, L is going to be back. We now have a new Isadora. So L will be back and talking September 7th about, uh, about Isadora. And it's just an incredible uh, chance in the lab. All this stuff happening, of course, uh, in uh, After Hours. And now we're going to go ahead and jump into the second hour. And welcome back uh, to our second hour. And we're here with Matt Bach from Puget Systems. And uh, we're really excited to have you, Matt. Can you, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see you again, Alex. Yeah, good to um, see you too. I yeah, I think I did office hours several years ago. Exactly, uh, it was on a larger panel. Well, uh, and, so and I, back. yeah, it's good to have you back. Uh, we were, we, we, we. I was talking to some folks, and we're like, we have to get Puget back. It's been a while, and I'm sure that there's <laughs> been a lot of updates and and a lot of things that have gotten a lot better. So, can you tell us what's what's new at Puget Systems? What are you guys paying attention to? Yeah, sure. Um, so a little bit of background, just for, if anyone doesn't isn't familiar with Puget Systems, we we do uh, high end workstations for I mean a variety of industries. Uh, media and entertainment is one of our biggest verticals. Um, so all of you guys basically, uh, but we also do some stuff for uh, scientific computing, which is more and more kind of been blurring with uh, media and entertainment. All the AI stuff, which I mean we're going to be talking about here, but um, there's just so much going on that's kind of in partnership between those two. Uh, we also do a lot of things in, um, well, actually like game dev is an area that we, we do a lot, which is again, having a lot of merger with all the virtual production stuff, you know, using Unreal Engine. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting how we've had all these separate verticals that we've been working at for the last, you know, 10, 20 years that we've been in business. And now they're all kind of like converging on media and entertainment they're all kind of coming together and everyone needs really expensive hardware like it, it, it's it, yeah. it is we, we kept on thinking it was going to get cheaper and cheaper and people talked about like little internet boxes and everything mm -hmm. else but for a lot of the stuff that we're doing i mean you're building these really complex systems and you know and i will say for those watching that uh, when i'm out talking to folks they're either building their own machines or they're having puget do it like they're not there's not like a lot of in between you know that we that we see and and usually the, the puget ones look works look, work so well <laughs> so anyway yeah. so so the uh so what are the things when you uh when you're when you're putting these together now what are the big trends or the big pinches that you've seen um, in the last couple of years yeah the last couple of years well i mean starting with covid um there's there has been a lot of shifts uh, i mean there's the Behind the scenes details of supply has been has that oh man, especially through COVID, it was rough. Has it has it has that kind of has all the supply issues that we saw have that kind that's kind of evened out? It's mostly evened out. Um, I, I'd say at this point we're having more demand um, issues, I guess, or like over demand than under supply, uh, especially in uh, like the video card uh, world. And Has a that lot of that, a I think, easier. I mean, for a long time, we were we had the the Bitcoin problem, which was that mm -hmm. everyone was buying so many graphics cards for Bitcoin that we couldn't that we couldn't get them for our own graphics use. Um, has that? Yep. It seems that as Bitcoin has dropped in price the demand for those cards has eased up a little bit? A little bit, yeah. We're not getting the extreme, like, hey, you're having to buy a card at two times the MSRP anymore. Um, right. Now, though, Bitcoin has been replaced by AI. <laughs> so right. people are getting big systems for AI stuff. Um, the only 
or the good advantage, I guess, for us right now is those tend to be the enterprise kind of cards. So not right. the kind of things we would throw into a system for Premier Pro or DaVinci Resolve anyway. Um, right. So these are, it, these are like, like $20,000, $30,000 cards, right? These yeah. aren't the, yeah. the, the crazy cards. Um, and again, like it wouldn't be the right fit for like what we're doing. But NVIDIA is, I'm sure taking a look at their manufacturing and saying like, well, you know, we can make a RTX 4090 for, you know, $2,000, or we can make this other thing for $20,000. Well, which, which, what should we do? And, I, and we can sell as many $20,000 cards as we can make. Like that's the exactly. thing right now, right? There's just like an almost an unlimited demand for those really big cards. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there is still some of that. It is still impacting us a little bit, uh, but at least we're not having to deal with scalpers anymore because we had that problem major during right. the Bitcoin where people would buy as many cards as they could as fast as they could. And then they would turn around and resell it on eBay for two times the price. So at least we're not having to deal with that. Right. No, absolutely. So, and so, um, so AI of course is big. Now, are you building machines for AI right now? Yeah, we're starting to do more and more. Um, you know, it's AI is a very interesting one because there is a lot of stuff that people are using every day that they don't realize is AI. Um, right. You know, a lot of stuff in Premiere, a lot of stuff, especially now in Resolve. Like Resolve just added a bunch of stuff in their latest update. A lot of like masking, like automatic masking stuff, audio transcription, stabilization, and now, subtitles. And that, that can all be accelerated by the cards? Yeah, to to a degree. Um, it really depends on which one it is. If you're talking about something like uh, their new optical flow, so like for slow motion, you're doing slow motion, uh, that can make benefit greatly by a more powerful. And that team. is a for those of you, I've done a lot of optical flow, and that is a painful process and super yeah. super painful um, to to watch a lot of times. And so it's great. So and what kind of cards accelerate that effectively? Yeah, so we typically are using NVIDIA GPUs. Um, AMD and Intel, actually, now Intel's the third third party in the game now for discrete GPUs. Uh, they're doing a lot of work. Um, if you see, like, things in the news, if you follow tech at all, you might have heard something about, like, RockM and, and things like this. Uh, but they're, they're trying to make a lot of gains, uh, and they have. Like, uh, Stable Diffusion is another one uh, that they just released some updates for, and it's like, oh, cool, yeah, it's 20% faster with this update, but it's still half the performance of NVIDIA. <laughs> so it's like, right. yeah, it looks, looks great by itself, but NVIDIA is still really the way to go um, on these kind of systems. Well, and, and, and AMD, isn't AMD kind of starting to bring the GPU and the CPU together more kind of like what Apple's doing with the M, M series? Yeah, kind of. Um, I mean, to be honest, I mean, Intel's done that for a very long time. They've had mm -hmm. integrated graphics on their GPUs, and we've benefited from that for a, quite a while because that's how you get QuickSync to do uh, hardware acceleration of like H.264 and HVC. Uh, but in, AMD is starting to do more on their CPUs, but at the moment... I don't think it's really anything that's super usable. Uh, both AMD and Intel do some things where like, uh, I think Intel calls it deep link where you can use your G your in, in Intel GPU plus the Intel integrated graphics and they work together. And it's like, yeah, it works really great on laptops where like you're, you're talking about lower power or lower, you know, uh, compute power devices. It's like, it's great if you can add another 50%. Uh, but when you're talking about desktops, it's generally like, cool, you've added another 5% performance, but now you've increased the complexity, which means that sometimes it's actually not a 5% performance improvement. Sometimes it actually degrades performance. Right. Um, 
Now, so some of that, that stuff isn't as useful. And what operations are you looking at? Like, so you're looking for, um, you know, a heavy CPU or heavy GPU. What are the operations that, where does that kind of separate for you? Man, it, it comes down oftentimes to like, what are you trying to do? Um, yep. This stuff that's in like Resolve or Premiere that's like baked in, generally it's kind of a balance between CPU and GPU. Um, sometimes it depends, like optical flow, again, is very heavy on GPU. CPU doesn't do a whole lot. Right. Um, but oftentimes it's a balance. And most of the time, the way I tend to think about it for people who don't want to get super into the tech side of it is think about what you would want if you were working with raw footage. And that's probably about you know where you should be aiming for for these things right. that are built into these applications and what and what cpus are you focused on you know we're doing a lot of uh the intel's consumer line the the core series you know you, mm-hmm. you, if you still watch tv all the intel commercials about intel core inside stuff um right. we do a lot of those that's probably a good three quarters of our systems um so not a lot not as many thread rippers we do some, uh, but the Threadrippers are very much, uh, you, you pay quite a bit more uh, because uh, AMD and, and Intel, actually, they both kind of dropped their enthusiast level, like this in-between level that people would kind of jump up from consumer into this level, and then they could go up to pro. They pretty much dropped that mid-level. So now we go, hey, you want to do Intel consumer, or you can spend twice as much <laughs> and right. get you know, 10, 15% more performance. And so a lot of, at least our customers, don't really see the value in that. Um, they'd rather spend that money on other things, you know, that will get them more improvement for their workflow. Uh, but we do still sell a decent number of them. But it, it all comes down to ROI. Does 20% more performance for spending another two, $3,000, does that make sense? For some people, it is an absolute yes. For other people, it's a nah, not so much. <laughs> And when people are thinking, when you're building these pro systems, how much does I/O come into it? I know that for on, on a, you know, on many systems, yeah. it's like how much stuff can I plug in, or how many things can I put into? Is is that a it, what part of that fits into the consider, consideration? It it does. I mean, there there are some um, you know things that are always you know uh, you, as many USB ports as can be on there because people love to plug in USB. Um, Thunderbolt is always always a big one that, especially in the media and entertainment space. It's basically a requirement on our 4. systems. Yeah, Thunderbolt 4. Yeah. And there are times where we can't do it. And so we always have to make sure like big banners of like this doesn't have Thunderbolt or if you need Thunderbolt, you'll go to this other system just because of how prevalent it is. Um, but yeah, it, Thunderbolt on PC is, man, it's so much better than the first edition of Thunderbolt or Thunderbolt 2 was very problematic. It's gotten a lot better. Right. But we still have to dedicate quite a bit of our qualification time to checking out Thunderbolt, trying it on different devices, making sure it works when you're daisy chaining uh, and doing all that. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, especially in the DIY space, they say, oh, this board has Thunderbolt. Great. And then they get it and it doesn't work quite well. <laughs> yeah, we go through a lot of work making sure it'll work. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, John, you had some questions? Hey, uh, good to see you again, Matt. And and uh, are you guys doing H100s and A100 cards in the AI stuff? We're looking at it. Um, those cards are very controlled uh, by I- NVIDIA. It's not the kind of thing you can just go down to Best Buy and you know buy a card or or anything like that. So uh, we're looking at it. Uh, a lot of those things, it has such a far lead time. Like you might be looking at, hey, we want a card okay, you got to wait 16 to 30 weeks. Um, and so it, it's a really large investment because we're not, we're not going to make a customer wait 16 to 30 weeks, which means that we have to hold an inventory, 
you know, 20, 30, 40 of these, you know, some of these cards are like Alex was saying, are like $20,000. And so we're looking at it. We're seeing what we can do. Uh, but we're not to the level of like, you know, Dell where they can be like, oh yeah, sure. We'll just throw another $5 million of inventory at this problem. Um, so we definitely want to look at it. Uh, and we are doing more in those higher end spaces, but we're largely still working with the they're not quadra anymore the the rtx cards uh like the the a the 6000 adas uh because man those things they can do a lot and depending on what you're trying to do sometimes they're even a better option than those h100s or even the a100s what kind of um uh ram configurations are you looking at now i mean it keeps on getting larger i I talked to i was telling somebody the other day i was like i had to write a three-page paper to go from 128 megs of ram to 192 megs of RAM when I was working on Star Wars, trying to explain why I would need that. And um, and now every time I look at it, you know, it's it's 32, it's 64, it's 96, whatever. Uh, what What is a typical configuration that you're seeing uh, these days? Sure. This is actually very timely. I just uh, pulled up some reports the other day specifically for, I think it was Premiere Pro and, and Resolve. Um, and our average right now, about half of our systems do 128 gigs of RAM. Um, now... I always want to preface that with we very much target the higher end, um, which really I, probably makes sense with this crowd. Um, yeah. Some of the other you know talks I'm on, it's like, yeah, you might not need that, but you guys probably do. Uh, but we also do quite a few 256. Um, we do, I think it was something like 15% of our systems uh, for media and entertainment have 512 gigs of RAM. Uh, but you know, just like I was saying before, a lot of it comes down to what are you doing? Is it just Resolve and, or Premiere? Ah, you don't need 512 gigs of RAM. What, uh, are you, you doing need, a lot of fusion in After Effects? Mm, yeah. Right. So that's where it starts to eat up that RAM. Uh, where do you see the, the most prevalent uses of that kind of RAM? In media and entertainment, it very much is After Effects and fusion. Um, sometimes people right. do in like Houdini, like large simulations in, in Houdini, mm-hmm. uh, some VFX work. Um, the, the bigger limiter recently has been not with system memory, but video card memory, right. um, especially with like all this AI stuff that's going on. You know, people are wanting to train their own models because a lot of the AI models that you use off the shelf don't do particularly well to get you exactly what it is you want. They can give you something, but if you really want to make right. it look exactly like, you know, a certain style or whatever, you got to train your own models. And that's where you need lots of video card memory. Um, so that's where we get people coming to us and they're getting, I mean, it, it's usually how big can I get, which today is 48 gigs of VRAM, at least on, you know, most kind of cards. Um, so yeah, that's the bigger limiter today. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's the, the, I know that for photogrammetry, for instance, that's, that's a good example <laughs> for me. Uh, we run into that that ceiling often <laughs> when, when we're yeah. when we're building really big data sets uh it, it needs to have all of that in ram f- to do the processing at least at the very beginning and that becomes problematic you know yeah, to, ex- to make that actually work yeah exactly exactly and you know there's always people who are what's the most possible that's not enough <laughs> i mean it, it, it drives it and you know we're going to get more and more uh like memory right now they're about to release new ram that's um not going to be a multiple of two, which is odd. You know, it's always been, you know, two gigs, four gigs, eight, 16, 32, right. 64. Uh, they're coming out now with sticks that are going to be 48 gigs, which means all of my math, you know, where I can show off my multiples of two and just, you know, rattle it off to thousands and thousands of numbers that my math won't be impressive anymore because <laughs> I don't know what the multiple of 48 is. <laughs> yeah, it's and uh, where do you see do you see VR really impacting the way 
systems are designed right now? VR? Yeah. Not, not as much. Um, we had a big VR craze, oh, maybe five years ago, um, where right. we were doing a lot of stuff. Um, and I think VR has kind of stabilized into certain niches. Like um, we're still seeing good use of it in like training, you know, especially like a lot of the trades, you know, where like, hey, if you're a lineman and you're you know working with electrical lines where you make a mistake and you're dead. Yeah. Doing that training in VR is awesome. Um, and we are still seeing some other stuff and uh, not as much in media anymore. I know people are still making, you know, VR experiences and, and things like that. Um, but we haven't heard quite as much. Yeah. And, um, and on the Mac side, obviously we're, there's a lot of excitement because of the Apple vision, you know, pro so that, so we're seeing yeah. a, lot, a lot of stuff there, but yeah, I could see it being a little slower on the PC side. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and it, it's just, I think on the PC side, it's just no longer a new and exciting thing. I mean, we've had right. headsets that we've been working on PC for, you know, I, I don't remember when the first Oculus Rift came out, but it was, I had to have been a good eight, 10 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so it will be interesting to see, okay, Apple's doing this now with their headsets. Are we going to see a resurgence of stuff? Well, and I think uh, the hard part is, is that there's, there are limits to what you can do. Even Apple runs into these limits of what you can mm-hmm. do when you're trying to drive it all from the headset. So putting all the chips into the headset, and that's what we started. The Oculus started by being tethered, of course, to the computer. And then we moved out and started to, to try to, everyone wanted to make it easier and cheaper, and you just pick it up and put it on. But the advantage of the tether is that you can take advantage of a lot of a lot more hardware. So, you know, some of the the not um, consumer VR systems are running on some pretty heavy hardware so that they can run higher frame rates at higher resolutions with more textures. And, you know, those are the things that I think are potentially interesting. Although, the, the again, the consumer versions of these VR systems are, have gone to the easy version. The professional, you know, the kind of the higher end stuff some is kind of leaning into some of the bigger systems. That's why I, I didn't know if you'd seen much of that yet, but... Yeah. And, and again, we've seen some, we do systems for VR. Um, I think we even have a, uh, what we call our, our recommended systems or solutions. It's basically, Hey, here's kind of a, a, a little bit better of a, some defaults rather than just like, here's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of parts. Um, and I think we do still have one for VR. Um, but yeah, it, it's one of those things where if you're, if it's the right thing for what you're doing, it is absolutely the right thing for what it's doing. Um, otherwise it kind of just turns into a novelty, um, right. Like you still see if you like walk around Vegas, you know, during NAB, like they still have those like VR experience things where you go and sit in and every year they just look a little bit more run down because it's losing that novelty factor. So it, I, I think it's definitely at the point now where like, okay, if there's a use and a need, it makes sense. Right. Uh, but as a novelty, it's kind of lost it. I take it though, right now, most of your focus is on the AI solutions uh, at the moment. Yeah, it's a lot of AI, uh, a lot of virtual production. Virtual production is very large for us right now. Um, we, we're doing a lot of work with a number of different studios. Uh, View Studios is one of the the most visible, I guess, one we do a lot yeah. of work with. Uh, and so when you that say virtual production, some people are thinking virtual production is people in lots of places. But what you're talking about is running big uh, LED walls, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. Big, big LED walls, uh, camera tracking, um, you know, lighting tracking. Um, and there's a lot that goes into it. If, if you've never like experienced what it's like to be in there, like, man, it is complicated. Um, you know, some of these stages, they do things like whatever's in the camera focus actually moves with the camera, but then the rest of the background doesn't because right. you get in issues with like reflections. You know, I think Mandalorian's the, you know, go to example. 
or super reflective, but if the whole background was moving, it would look so wrong <laughs> on right. all that chrome. And um, I feel like those those with with those types of uh, systems, there's almost no limit to how much how much GPU power you would possibly need. Uh, because yeah, I know that well, sometimes they have to go back to green screen because they simply can't render it. You know, like they're you're, mm-hmm. you're in a space and there's just too much geometry back there to do the move that they want effectively, and so they end up having to just do a green. You know, we'll just turn green on and mm-hmm. and and know they're going to comp it later because of that that issue. Yeah, well, and a lot of the things too is technically there is never a time where geometry should be a problem because you can just divide your screen up into smaller and smaller chunks because how, how we do it is um, a lot of the ones like for View Studios, I think it's like a six node thing where their screen behind them is divided into basically six grids. Um, you're just like so these six, are six monitors. different computers. These are like six, six different computers or six different. Yeah. yeah, there's six different computers and they're synced together because, you know, you don't want you know, the frames to together? be slightly off. Hmm? Uh, there's a right now they use a it's called NVIDIA sync. Uh, so it's, it's a card from NVIDIA that syncs all the GPUs together. Uh, there's some new stuff, uh, some new SMPTE standards that they're hoping to do that over LAN soon. Uh, so you're not vendor locked into NVIDIA, which will be great. Like I right. always like when we're not vendor locked. Um, but technically, you just so divide those grids up smaller now, and smaller. Now, and, and while those those cards are are um, synced together, they are in different machines, though. So they're not they're they yeah. each have their own CP, their own their own blade or their own. Is it a blade or is it a? Bigger? Uh, we do larger than blade. Um, we usually do four use. Um, you can absolutely do blade. A lot of times, it comes down to cost versus space. Um, and usually at least in virtual production, like it's just going into some closet and they don't have a ton of computer equipment. So they'd rather get a little bit bigger systems that are cheaper per system, uh, than trying to go all the way down. The systems are kind of just holding the the GPU in a lot of ways, you know, like it's a, it's a box that kind of powers the. Yeah. uh, Well, and so because it's all running off of unreal engine, um, it's not doing something like, you know, octane render or something like that where, yeah, it's actually parallel. No, unreal engine is really only going to use one GPU. Um, we do. We used to do two system or two GPUs in a system. I think we've largely moved to one. Um, some of that's just NVIDIA has dropped some of the things that you would need to really sync two individual cards in one system. So now we're just doing one. And yeah, and, and so you really do just each one of those chunks is just powered by one GPU. And it's just how many chunks do you want to divide your screen into? Uh, you know, because usually they try to divide it up into it's basically 4K, you know, 3840 by 2160 is what they divide it into. But you don't have to do that. You could go down to 2K. You could do HD if you really wanted to, if you had really complex geometry. But you have to decide that when you're building the entire stage. Right. You can't that's decide to change it for one production. It's, nope, that's what it is. You want to change it? It's going to cost you, you know, $30 million to redo your entire stage. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Choose well. Uh, yeah. I think we've got a, we've got a bunch of ca- uh, questions stacking up here. So let's go ahead and jump into the first question. Sure. Chris Sabato in Albany, Oregon writes in, I just received a Dell Precision desktop I configured to run Femix. What did I miss out on by not looking at Puget? How could I, how would I convince IT that it would be better to go with a company like Puget? Oh man, that is quite a softball question for me to promote our company, isn't it? Um, you know, I'll, I'll give this the answer I usually give when we get that kind of these questions at you know shows like NAB or we're we're getting up to, gearing up to go to Adobe Max here and NAB New York too actually will be there. Um, usually it comes down to the hardware itself. As long as you're getting the right hardware, it's probably not that different. Like you know, Dell they do a great job, HP, Lenovo. As long as you got the right hardware for what you're doing, cool. 
the big thing with us as a smaller company who focus on media and entertainment, especially is we can make sure you're getting into that right hardware. Uh, Cause I mean, man, everybody's workflow is different and I'm always amazed at how unique, I guess it is that we train all of our staff to not talk hardware, but talk, Hey, what are you doing? What applications are you using? Cool. What codecs are you using? Like what's your workflow between different applications and then telling them, all right, you want this uh, for your, for your budget. Um, it's always amazes me again, how like rare that is, but I guess it just, just takes a lot of time in larger companies. They probably tend to have more turnover in their sales staff. So you can't spend that five year investment training. Um, but so there, there's that, you know, pre pre-sale, uh, but then also too, like, Computers are computers, you know, whether it's a Dell, a Puget, a, a Mac, they're going to have a problem at some point, you know, whether it's hardware or more often, if it's like a driver update or a Windows update or a software update. Um, so a lot of it, too, with us is that post-sale support of something broke. Cool. Let's figure out, first of all, what a workaround is to get you back up and running as quickly as possible. And then okay, let's fix this problem permanently. Um, and that kind of a stance, again, sometimes feels a little unique when it shouldn't be. But, you know, man, every minute or hour you're down, that, that's so much lost money and lost time. Let's get you back up and running as fast as we can. You know, if we've got to send you a GPU out overnight and talk you through how to swap it out, cool. If you're not comfortable doing that, let's overnight it back to us and get it fixed. You know, cool, just whatever we need to do. Next question. Uh, John Foltz in Sellens Grove, Pennsylvania writes in, I just ordered a system from Puget. Arrives Tuesday. Great experience. Can you explain the testing you do for Premiere and Final Cut? Well, not Final Cut. Or, Final yeah, Cut's Apple Premier. only. Yeah, <laughs> Premiere or Resolve, yeah. Yeah, we do a lot of testing, especially for the the Adobe suite um, is kind of one of our go-tos. So um, we do a lot of testing ahead of time, like uh, not on each individual system. Uh, in fact, if you go to our website and you go to um, there's a uh, publications and articles, we we publish like everything. You know, so we just got through a whole bunch of testing for stable diffusion on the AI side. But every time there's new hardware out from Intel or NVIDIA, we throw it through our ringer of, of testing uh, and then we publish those results because, I mean, we need to know how much faster is this CPU versus that one. And so why not share it? Um, so we do all that ahead of time, uh, but also on every single system we ship out, we do a lot of different testing. Um, we kind of give a smorgasbord kind of, of testing where we test a lot of different workflows, you know, things that you probably don't care about, but we want to make sure that all the hardware is working right. Uh, but then we also do what we call our extended testing, depending on what you told us you do. So if you told us you do Premiere Pro, we do extra testing in Premiere Pro to make sure that there's no weird issues because sometimes, you know, you can do a quick test for half an hour and everything looks great, but then you do that for two or three hours and okay, there's, there's this one little thing that's going on. Um, and usually it's not a hardware issue. Usually it's, is something is weird with the software, <laughs> but we do want to make sure that that hardware is a hundred percent solid and then you're not going to have any issues when you get it. Next question. Jeffrey Ray is in Bronx, New York, writes in, I'm interested in getting a PC with an RTX 4090, but also need to add a Blackmagic 4K capture card, which requires PCIe 8X or 16. However, I assume the 4090 will likely be covering those high bandwidth PCIe slots. How can I make this work? 
Well, if you're buying it from us, uh, you don't have to worry about that because we do that all the time. Um, yeah, it, it is a concern, especially if you're DIYing or you're like adding in a black magic card afterwards, because um, whether maybe you have one or whatever. Uh, but yeah, you do have to make sure that you're not covering the slots with the GPU, but also that the GPU has at least one space below it that's empty. Because man, modern GPUs these days, like they use a crazy amount of power and crazy amount of power means crazy amount of heat. <laughs> and so you really got to make sure it's got uh, plenty of space below it. Uh, the one thing I will mention though, is a lot of motherboards, especially on the, uh, like the consumer grade, the Intel Core, AMD Ryzen, they only have so many PCIe lanes. And so they split it up. So if you have a GPU, it'll run 16 lanes. You add another card. Now both of these are running at eight because they only have 16 or 24 total lanes. Uh, generally, if you're just doing that, it doesn't really matter. Uh, the analogy I kind of use sometimes is like, okay, you've got a garden hose and you've got like a five inch PVC pipe. It, there's only so much water going through that pipe and you can turn that five inch pipe down to a two inch pipe and it still really doesn't matter. Like it, it's, it's not, you know, saturating it. So usually down to eight lanes is just fine. Um, and in fact, we're working on an article right now where we're looking at that. And so we'll have numbers exactly for that for things like Premiere Pro and DaVinci Resolve, uh, probably in the next few days. Um, maybe sometime next week. So if you go on our site next week, we'll, you'll actually be able to look at those numbers and be like, oh yeah, okay, it's going to make it 1% slower. Who cares? It, it sounds like, it sounds like from, from what you just from your comments, are you seeing a lot more resolve use than you have in the past? We are, we are seeing a lot more resolve. Um, a lot of the, like, I, I guess you call them influencers, but basically people that we work with, you know, who are in the industry, um, a lot of them have been switching over from like Premiere After Effects workflows over to Resolve and um, Fusion. Uh, it's a it's a shift, uh, but yeah, we are seeing quite a bit. It's still, I mean, still we sell far more systems for Premiere than for Resolve, but you know, some of that is just that's kind of what we're known in the industry for, and I think people right. are still figuring out. They're like, okay, I've moved over to Resolve. Oh man, what do I need now? Because it definitely is a different beast when it comes to like what hardware you really want to power it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. Uh, Paul Walhus in Austin, Texas writes in, what hardware do you need to run one of the M100 cards, which are a bit pricey, but necessary for AI? One panelist is looking to get four of these at 35K each. Oh boy. And if you can actually get those, good on you. <laughs> uh, you need quite a bit. I believe those cards are passive cards. Uh, which doesn't mean they don't need cooling. It means you have to provide your own cooling. Uh, so those are generally going to be reserved for rack mount systems. And you have to really have good workflow through them. They're really not intended for people to be able to buy and then put into their own systems. Um, so it's going to be and, quite and a bit of work. When you, when you say they're rack mounted and they're really intended, you're going to provide your own cooling. You're really talking about putting it in, a, in an atmosphere, right? That is That is the nice and cold you know, yeah so it's not it's not something that you, you it's not even just cooling for the device in your office uh if you could afford a hundred and fifty thousand um, dollar box it's putting it in a in in a controlled environment with a lot of ventilation right yeah that that too um i mean some of that just comes down to i mean four of those m100 shouldn't really be any different than someone doing a four or forty ninety system you know right. too much but yes, absolutely. I mean, think about it. That's going to be putting out, uh, I'm guessing at the wattage here, it's probably going to be putting out about 2,000 watts or so. So think two space eaters going to be sitting there 
on full time uh, is kind of what it's doing. Uh, but yeah, the big thing is that you need a, a rack mount system. Um, think, I mean, you guys have probably already, you know, seen, you know, you go into a server room and you hear those systems that are jet engines. That's what going to be what you're going to need <laughs> to do that. Yeah, yeah no, we, we've definitely built, uh, most of ours have been super micro or a couple other mm -hmm. ones that we had in the past. And uh, some of them we had were four GPUs that were there and we basically heat was like half the conversation of every time we used them was, you know, where are we doing heat? How are we managing the space? How are we managing the airflow? Because uh, they got, as you said, very hot very quickly. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely heat, heat and power. Uh, we, we just launched a LLM, a large language model, it's like ChatGPT uh, rack mount um, at SIGGRAPH. Uh, was that like a week ago? Uh, and that one, we even had to do, we're doing dual power supplies now, because if you want to do four GPUs, you can't just run it off a single power supply because power supplies, the maximum power supplies are designed to run on a standard like household circuit. So think like a 15 amp, 20 amp breaker, and we're requiring above that. So that's the other thing where like, hey, if you're building your own kind of stuff, you also might have to think of like, okay, I'm going to need dual power supplies to power each of these things. And I can't just plug both of those into one wall outlet if, if right. it's in your office. No, they have to be on separate circuits. And there hasn't been not much on those other circuits because, uh, hey, you plug in other stuff, you're just going to be tripping breakers. And that's not great. Yeah. And, and uh, so are you building machines that are all built for LLM? Like they're just they're just uh, pre kind of pre-configured for that? Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, we do everything from the range of just the base hardware and then people are loading on their own stuff, uh, especially in the AI space. When you're talking about LLMs, I think a lot of people, they want to set up their own. Um, and so, yeah, because they have a very specific need. Uh, we also are on this one. Uh, we're like we're preloading Ubuntu and I think it's Falcon 40. Um but, you know, sometimes, especially when you get into Linux again, sometimes it's like, okay, we're loading up some stuff so you can make sure it works when it arrives, and then they just wipe it. And half the time they wipe it, and then they don't realize all these other things that we did to make it work, because right. new hardware on Linux especially tends to sometimes be problematic. you got to be very specific with, like, your drivers. Um, so oftentimes that turns into a support call, and it's like, okay, well, okay, you use the restore disk that we gave you and set it back, <laughs> and then go from there. Might be more useful. Uh, next question. Uh, Douglas Carmichael writes in, with the performance per watt of Apple Silicon, how do you sell against the Mac in the markets where the Mac has usually reigned supreme? Yeah. I mean, those M1s or M2s now and stuff, like those things are amazing. Um I, you know, it's, it's honestly kind of the story we've always been telling where it's the right tool for the job. You know, it, it's like saying, you know, Ari's or red cameras or black magics are, are terrific. Why would anyone buy anything else? Well, it depends on what you're doing. Um, right. And so for us, like the M1s, if you are just like a, you know, fairly basic video editor, like you're just doing editing in Premiere or Resolve um, and you're not working with anything too extreme, you know, it's HVC Media or ProRes like, yeah, they're great. Um, I mean, if it's ProRes, anything's going to be able to do it. Um, but there are still those workflows where you just need the more oomph uh, behind it. And, you know, as efficient as those things are, they just don't have that oomph. Um, so a lot of raw workflows, uh, we're still getting a lot of people uh, coming to us for uh, a lot of like heavy simulation stuff, especially on like, the VFX side. Uh, people that are wanting to do more with AI, again, like generative AI, um, I don't think people realized how much faster you can do that on like a PC with like an NVIDIA GPU versus doing it on the Mac. Now, if you're only doing a little bit, you're just playing around with it, yeah, whatever, just use what you have. 
but we're starting to have customers now who are using AI heavy enough where like the system is cranking, you know, 20 hours a day. And at that point, you know, like being four or five times faster, yeah, that, that's great. Being able to finish something in a day versus a week. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it all, it all comes down to workflow, what you need. You know, if you need something mobile, honestly, man, Apple's hard to beat right now. Like their battery life. I mean, I've got an M1 back there. <laughs> like I use it. <laughs> it's all about the right tool for the job. Yeah. The interesting thing, you know, I think that people don't realize also when they look at Unreal is that there's a lot of things we still turn off in Unreal, um, you know, that, that we could turn on, but we don't have enough CPU power, even, you know, a CPU or GPU, or GPU power um, to make that actually work. And so, you know, being able to do some of the depth of field issues, some of the anti-aliasing, some of the oversampling, some, you know, those types of things, and then just throwing massive amounts of geometry at it. I mean, those things, there's no limit. You know what? What I found is that there was no limit to the amount of GPU power we could we could soak uh, with mm. with an with an Unreal with a proper Unreal uh, project. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, and and I think Apple has done a really good job of tailoring the M1 and accelerating things that are, I guess you call it like standard. Like hey, like every video editor kind of does this. It's really good at those things. But once you're starting to go off onto you know new things, you know whether it's Unreal or it's AI. Um, Apple is just, what's the right word to say it? They're almost like, they're a lot less nimble. Um, I, I think they, they, they look for stability and like norms more than they look for cutting edge. Whereas, mm-hmm. you know, on the PC side, we have got NVIDIA and AMD and now Intel, and they're all competing to push the boundaries a lot more because, I mean, there's competition there. Well, there's and, competition and, between those three companies. You know, I think un- unlike the last ver- version of the Mac Pro, Apple has really carved out, like, we're going to go from $500 to $12,500. And they're not trying, you know, the, the last version had a $60,000 version that you could put in r- immense amounts of RAM and everything else. And Apple just seemed to kind of like, we're not going to go there. We're going to go, we're going to take, this is the this is the part of the market that we want. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is a big part of the market, <laughs> but but it's yeah. but it kind of leaves open the the really heavy heavy lifting. Um, feels like it it really leaves it open to Linux and and Windows you know machines to to make those work. Yeah, I think it does, and I mean, and you know, that's the kind of a call that every company has to make. I mean, we make that call all the time. You know, we made that call with laptops uh, back in the day. We did laptops, and at the time, it, it just was not good for us. I mean, it was good for our customers, wasn't good for us. And so we pulled out of laptops and same kind of thing. I think Apple is probably just making that same call of where do we want to focus? Because right. if you don't focus, you're just not going to do a good job. I mean, you, you have to prioritize where you want to spend your time and, and your money and your budgets. And I think, yeah, Apple has just found that like, oh man, iPhones, <laughs> iPods yeah. or not iPods. Um, yeah, the earbuds. Well, and I still, I, I think that, you know, uh, Sub twelve thousand dollars is probably ninety nine percent of the market. So it's oh yeah, you, you oh guys yeah, live in the one percent. So, so yeah, well, the, I mean, uh, even for us, you know, systems above ten thousand dollars are not the norm. Right, right. Um, right. Absolutely. You know, it's we spend a lot of time on those because, like, man, those people have very unique needs. It's not just hey, I'm a Premiere Pro editor working with HVC. It's I'm doing these weird and crazy things. What do I need? Right. It's like, oh, okay, <laughs> let's figure yeah. it out. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes in, what's up with the X299 motherboards and vMix users? Is there a new platform with enough PCI lanes on the horizon? Oh, man. X299 is dead. Um, It's basically what it is. Uh, So X299 was Intel's 
enthusiast uh, segment. Uh, so it was kind of an in-between consumer. And this and is like what you Zeon. said they, they, they kind of gave up on. They just were like, there's not enough market here. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, and a lot of people were really not happy with that. Um, and I think that got a lot of people to move over to AMD because AMD had their Threadripper line, which is in the middle. Uh, but now AMD has also done that. They've nixed the mid-range and they moved up. The intention from both Intel and and AMD, not NVIDIA, is they have their, their workstation line, their pro line, whatever you want to call it, Xeon or Threadripper Pro. And the intention is they have lower end CPUs that you can use for what used to be HEDT, the high end desktop uh, kind of stuff. So the intention is you move up to Xeon and you just get one of their lower end ones. Um, Xeon even has two different chipsets. So you have to like, like the CPUs can go between the two, but the intention is you use that lower end chipset and that's basically the X299 replacement. Uh, the problem is Intel and AMD might think it that way but motherboard manufacturers have not. And so even those lower end chipsets, those boards are still just as expensive as the high end ones. And you know, pay, having to pay $1,500, $2,000 for a motherboard is a tall ask when it used to be X299 where it was like 400 bucks. So it's just kind of that mid range line has kind of died off. I, th I think some of that too is the consumer line have gotten such high core count now. I mean, AMD is at 16 full cores. Uh, Intel is at eight full cores and I think it's 12 efficiency cores. Or no, 16. Um, and like, well, that's then just, there's the rumored, there's a rumored, what the, the AMD, the threat, the 96 core thread ripper. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, yeah. Yeah. Whether that'll be coming out with the new thread rippers. I mean, mm -hmm. we don't know. I mean, AMD hasn't announced that stuff, but um Sometimes you can look at what they're doing with their server lines, so like their Epic stuff. Uh, I think those are, yeah, they have 96. I think they even have a 128 core. Um, so some of it is just they have to decide what do they want to bring down to the consumer workstation market. Because some of them, like 128, I don't know if that'll make sense. Like you have to have a highly parallel workflow. And even today, most of our systems are 32 cores or below because 64 cores don't give you a benefit and in fact can give you a performance degradation um, on Windows especially just because of how it all works. Right. Um, so even then we don't often do 64. So 98 or 96 core probably isn't going to be as impressive as people think uh, for most workflows. But so that's kind of what happened in that mid range is it's kind of just gone away and you're supposed to go up to the Xeon or Threadripper Pro and just use the lower end of those. But in practice, it doesn't work out quite so well. Next question. Tlala Lopez Waterman writing in from Galisteo, New Mexico. How do you publish many of your benchmark research for free? How has this helped or hurt your overall business? Yeah, man, I can totally talk about that. So I think overall, it has absolutely helped our business. Um, I, it's one of those things where if you help the, the the industry and you do what you can to advance it you know, in whatever way you can, it comes back and it pays dividends. Um, it's a long-term payoff. Uh, so we started uh, our labs department is what we call it. Uh, that was just me actually back in the day. That was probably 12 years ago or so. And you know, we had a little bit of growing pains. We started off doing like part reviews on like a component level and realized, oh, there's other people who are doing this much better than us. So we started looking at where is there a lack of knowledge and information? And we quickly found that it was in these professional use cases, whether it's media and entertainment, whether it's engineering, 
um, you know, whatever. AI didn't exist back then. Uh, and so we just started looking at, well, let's let's solve these questions. Uh, so much of it is, I mean, it's still kind of the case today where someone asks a question, someone on Reddit or Facebook or whatever, they say, oh, well, it's obviously this, but they have no basis for it <laughs> at all. It's like, you know, yeah, it's, I built we, a system with this one thing and it was great. Well, I, cool. you know, I, I talk about, uh, you know, life experience a lot, you know, like professional life experience is really, really, really important. And it's always amazing how people like they'll read a bunch of things and then they think that they know it, you know, and, and, and I'm always like, well, that's what ChatGPT does. <laughs> if you want to know yeah, what ChatGPT yeah. is going to replace, it's going to replace people reading things and having opinions. You know, you, you know, what's different, though, is when you're actually doing it and when you're actually working on it. Mm -hmm. um, it's just an entirely different, you know, the, the map is never the territory, right? Yeah. Well, and the other thing with the tech world, too, is it changes. Like something that was true 10 years ago is now completely wrong. Or, you know, sometimes it'll even change within like the space of a year. Um, my, my great example for that is After Effects. So what was it, 2015 or so when they added um, the, not multi-frame rendering, that's the new thing. But they, they dropped, uh, oh, what was it? Render multiple frames simultaneously, I think, or something right. like that. Um, they, they dropped some features and it totally changed what kind of like hardware you'd want. So within the span of a month, we had people giving advice again on, on social media or whatever, and it was completely wrong. It was outdated because of one update. Right. Um, so, yeah, we, we do a lot of work of anytime there's major updates, anytime there's major hardware releases, we put it through our, our ringer. Um, and we do that multiple ways. We use off the shelf stuff from, I mean, Octane Bench has a rendering benchmark. We use those or V-Ray, uh, but we also do a lot of development uh, to make our own benchmarks. Um, right. So we have now benchmarks that you can download for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, After Effects, Photoshop, uh, Lightroom. Kind of Lightroom is kind of a little bit finicky, right. uh, and you can duplicate your testing uh, or our testing. Um, and you know the question was like, what's the benefit of that? Well, there's a lot. One, it makes us an authority in the space. We, right. we, when we say something, we have data to back it up. And right. so like, it's not a, hey, just trust, just trust me, bro. It's like, look, mm -hmm. it's, it's numbers. And it's numbers that other people can verify. Because uh, you know, right. a lot of reviewers are using our benchmarks now. Intel and NVIDIA and AMD are using it as part of their launch schedules. Um, so it's that. Uh, but yeah, since you can run it on your system, the one of the big benefits for us is when someone's getting a new system and they're not sure what their the, like return on their investment is gonna be, Oftentimes we tell them, hey, run our benchmark. Like it's not going to be exact for your workflow because everyone's workflow is different. And a benchmark by definition is going to be a little generic, but it's at least in Premiere Pro or After Effects. And so they can look and they say, like, okay, cool, I can expect somewhere around a 30% performance gain by buying a new system. Um, and that's great for us because I think sometimes expectations people expect more like they, right. they're like, Oh, I have a four year old system. A new system should be twice as fast. And it's like, no, it's not really. It's only going to be like 40 to 50% faster for yeah. a lot of things. Some things it might be. Um, so it's also about setting that expectation. Um, as far as like the cons, I guess the only con really is, yeah, it costs us time and money. But again, right. it's like, it's a big part of our marketing. Like it brings yeah, people I, in. It's I, cool. Um, and I guess our competitors can use the data. I mean, we know that they do. Like, <laughs> we know that they read it. Sometimes we see like a blog post come up from somebody or and it's like, right. huh, that's very suspiciously like they copy and paste it into chat GPT well, and told them to reword it. <laughs> and I, and I think that the real value, I mean, we, we talk a, a lot about this here because of course we're pretty free about information is that there's two ways to look at what you know. And one is your knowledge is an asset and your knowledge is a currency. 
And I think that a lot of people will hold on to knowledge like it's their asset. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that, is that knowledge is a, is a very, it's a, it, 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 it deals with hyperinflation all the time, especially now in the sense that it becomes worthless very quickly. <laughs> you know? and so, so it's much easier to, because your knowledge is, it's either changing or everyone's learning it all so, so quickly that the most efficient way to use knowledge is as an, as a currency, which is that I'm going to take what I know and is while I have it and while it's still valuable, I'm going to hand it to everyone as fast as possible to position myself, you know, in a community because the community is the, the asset. Yeah, John, you were going to ask a question. Yeah. Talk about benchmarks. Any thoughts on the, the latest uh, LTT kerfuffle? That's our favorite word here. Oh, oh man. You know, I don't, I don't say I don't want to get into things very often unless it's actually NDA information, but that might be one where I might have to say like, uh, that should probably go through like our, our social social media team a little (laughs) bit. Um, I will say that we, we've, we've worked with, uh, Linus Tech Tips quite a bit over the years. And in fact, we just did a factory tour with them, um, a couple weeks ago, uh, when they were doing their, their Linus Tech Tip Expo thing. So we got to tour their factory and take a look. We talked with a lot of their people who do their own benchmarking, you know, all the automation that they're working up and everything. Um, they are a, a good, oh man, again, anything you talk about controversy is, is rough when I'm speaking from a, official capacity. But I, I will say that I, most of the people there, all the people we've had interactions with, they're all good people. Um, so I, I do hope that they get through everything, I, you know, that they're going through right now. Um, I think some of it's just growing pains. You know, they started off as a small company. You know, we did the same thing too. We started off as a very small company and we've grown. I mean, and it's it's been rough even for us. I mean, not rough, but it's been you have to put a lot of work in on the like HR side and all of that kind of stuff. Once you pass that, like you're no longer just a close group of people working together. Now you're like a company. It's a lot. And um, I hope I, they get through it. Um, and, I, and I'm sure it's rougher for them just because of how visible they are. I mean, everything they do is so visible. Whereas for us, like it's the only visibility is when we go out to things or when we put up articles. So I, I wish them well and I hope they, they do get everything figured out. I think what people don't realize is someone who had a small company for, you know, that grew very, very fast is that you have all these visions for a company, but when you grow really fast, there's only one conversation that really takes over everything and that's making payroll, you know, like, you know, like, and and so you just become very focused on payroll. And I think that that's the problem that they, the challenge they got into is making payroll. It's 120 people there. Uh, Next, uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes in, when will you bring back the famous Twitch build and chat streams with Houston Beardosaurus Bennett? I always enjoyed watching them and they were a masterstroke for building engagement with the Puget brand. Yeah, those were a lot of fun. Uh, so background here, um, oh, I don't even know how long ago it was, six years ago or so. Uh, Houston, who is now our social media manager, um, he's got a big old beard, hence the beard source. Uh, he, uh, he would live stream building systems when he was in our production department. So, so and we, we would do some cool stuff. Like we would talk with the customer, first of all, and be like, hey, can we share like what your workflow is? You know, why you're buying this system? You know, are you okay with us doing that? And usually if they say no, then we move to someone else because we want to talk about not just the hardware, but like the why behind it. Um, and so he would stream that. I think it was almost even like every day. Uh, he would just stream and talk to people about, you know, what the, the hardware is, what the use case is. Uh, and yeah, that was great for engagement. Um, this is, I think, one of those things too, where as you grow in a company, you have to be a little bit more diligent about where you are spending your resources, you know, whether it's time or budget or money. 
And um, what we found in that case was most of the engagement there was with people in the DIY crowd who were not going to be customers ever. Um, and we do still do a lot of stuff for that crowd because what we found is, you know, just like Alex, you were saying, like it's a it's a currency. Um, our information and knowledge and interaction with those people, they then turn around and like someone asks them a question and they point to us. It was one of the big reasons why like on Reddit, when people ask questions about like systems for Premiere, they link to our stuff all the time because they know it exists. They, they trust us um, and great, but it, it was just to the point where like it was enough of an investment that we had to justify the ROI and there were better ways we could spend um, like Houston's time and, and our budgets and things. Um, I'd love to do more, uh, but it's just one of those hard things when you get to be, you know, you're no longer a small company. You're a little bit bigger company. How many people? Yeah, are so people? now we're, we're spending that budget on things like Adobe Max or going to right. NAB. You know, how that how many stuff. people are at Puget? Uh, I think we're up to 60 something now. Yeah. That's so, crazy. I mean, I started at Puget when it was two. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, because I've been there now. I, I think now I'm on my 21st year. Yeah, so that's amazing. It's great. Uh, next question. Jesse Mills in the San Francisco Bay Area writes in, how would Puget build a comp design for 10 or so ISO video records? A comp design for 10 computer or so design. ISO. So how would you design a computer if you wanted to record 10 isolated video inputs? Ooh, that is not something we do very often. Um, we would need to look up, do some research on, on that before we really like dive into anything. Um, I think it would also depend on whether it's HD or UHD. Yeah, there's a lot of questions here. Like, yeah, what are you trying to record to? Are you just going to be recording to like HEVC? Because I know there's a lot of accelerators for that that you can do. I think AMD just acquired some companies, Zynex or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, that they have a lot of accelerators for that. Um, So, yeah, a lot of it depends on what you're trying to do. but again, a lot of, there's a lot of accelerator cards for that. So, you know, we and, would have to go through the whole song and dance of, okay, well, how many of those cards are we going to need? How many PCIe slices is that going to mean? That probably is going to determine what platform you're going to be on. Probably going to be like Thread or Pro or a, a Xeon. Well, um, and, you know, and from a Mac side of it, you, you, we look at it as it's, it's the IO and the, and the drives, right? So, for yeah. me, you know, for me, I'd probably have two, two quad links that I'm going to get eight, eight each. So I'd have up to 16 channels of, of video. And then it's just drive speed, you know, like it's, you know, it's, yeah. it's a function of, of getting uh, NVMe drive, you know, cards that are going to, you know, be 32 terabytes or whatever. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. Next is, yeah, the storage, like how are you going to want to operate in that storage? Are you, are you going to be trying to go over a NAS and you're going to use like hundred gig or something? Or are you going to be doing uh, direct attached storage or are you going to try to do it all local? Um, we've done it in storage cards. at least. We've done it in cards and been pretty successful with it where we put the cards into the, and those are just NVMe cards that are 32 terabytes. Yeah. And we just, we don't even leave the computer. And then you have to, then you have a long transfer time afterwards. <laughs> yeah. You got to deal with it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. Th- there are some cool things you can do. I, we have a few customers right now. I don't know what they're doing exactly, but they end up getting, I think it's either four or eight NVMEs uh, that are working in parallel. Uh, and it's just on a PCIe card. Um, and you now, Are they doing like a there. software RAID across those? Is that what they're? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's like a software RAID across it. And <laughs> man, RAID, we don't do a lot of RAID anymore. Um, yeah, yeah, just yeah. with how fast things are and how reliable they are, it doesn't, Yeah. like you get a good backup. You still need backup, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But like RAID isn't really as useful anymore. Mm-hmm. But sometimes, man, when you want you know, 20 know gigs a second, 30 gigs a second. 
Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really think about rating MVMEs because they're so fast already. But that would be really. Yeah. I mean, we we rate little ones. You know, OWC makes these little boxes that we rate all the time. But I didn't think about rating the cards. Yeah, the the hard thing with NVMEs in those kind of workflows is they have throttling, uh, so they're very yeah, they much get hot. A lot of them, yeah, a lot of them are yeah. made for burst, which for most people is perfect. That's what you want. Like you really don't yeah. need sustained. Um, but when something like that, you really do need long term sustained. Um, and so. Some of the things we have to do is we have to simulate that workload and then see like, okay, great. The burst might be, you know, 30 gigabytes a second, but right. the sustained is going to be more like 20 once you've kind of dealt with that throttling, even with like heat sinks and stuff on it, they still, they have throttling built in. It's just like CPUs these days, everything these days throttle. <laughs> and it's a, yeah. Yeah. it's a, yeah, whole thing. Next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman writes in from Galisteo, New Mexico. How is the hardware different between DaVinci Resolve and Premiere? Very. Um, there are some things where it can be very comparable. Um, like if you're working with ProRes, it's CPU and you kind of just like that, that's it. Uh, but DaVinci Resolve, the big difference is they have a lot more things that utilize the GPU and even multiple GPUs. Uh, so typically, if I had to give a completely generic, not knowing what you're doing answer, is Premiere, you tend to focus on the CPU a little bit more and you get kind of a mid-range GPU. Uh, basically, usually it's you get a GPU that has enough video card memory for the resolution you want to work in. Um, so either an 8-gig card for like 4K, if you want to do 8K, you go up to a like a 16 or maybe even higher. Uh, DaVinci Resolve, though, so much of it is GPU accelerated. Um, not like working with the codex any different. Like, yeah, Red uses the GPU, great, but it does that in Premiere and Resolve. Uh, but it's when you get into like effects. So the open effects stuff, the noise reduction that they have, and um, all of these new AI things that they're adding in, those are very heavily GPU accelerated. Um, and so you typically are going to spend more of your budget on the GPU than the CPU for resolve. And depending on what level you're trying to work at, you might even want multiple GPUs. Uh, again, if you do a lot of noise reduction, especially it tends to be the most common for us, that's when you get into two GPUs, sometimes three, we don't really do four anymore. Uh, we talked earlier about power requirements. Right. A lot of it's because of that. Uh, but also there's a drop off in um, what performance you get back. Uh, there, there's always like a, a soft wall for performance. And typically three GPUs is about where you hit in DaVinci Resolve. So there's just and, and not do, a benefit. Do, does Fairlight access the um, DSPs? Can you get a DSP card for, for Fairlight? Does it do any of that? Not I don't know. I think it does. That's not something we've ever like had a request for or really have looked right. into. So I'm right. not sh I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's it's uh and I think Fusion definitely pushes a whole different set of buttons, right? You know, that's Fusion the is Fusion is very different. Um so one of the kind of weird things with Resolve is they're taking all these different applications and smooshing them all into one. Like Fairlight was its own thing, Fusion was its own thing, and they're smooshing it all together. And so Fusion actually is one where multiple GPUs is bad <laughs> most of the time. Uh, we actually show this in like our benchmarks and our testing when we do multiple GPUs where, cool, you're getting much better for noise reduction and open effects with two GPUs, but Fusion will take a 5-10% performance hit with a second huh. GPU. Um, I think some of that is probably there's, there's some legacy code in there from when it was a standalone thing and it doesn't hmm. perfectly jive with, you know, Resolve, you know, the rest of Resolve. Uh, right. Some of it is just the things in there don't really use the GPU as much. And so sometimes maybe it'll run some things on one GPU and it splits things out into another GPU. And then, well, now you're having crosstalk. And so you get a right. little bit of performance degradation. I'm not sure what the reason why, 
but yeah, it's definitely, that's one of the big reasons why when we've talked to people, it's not just what are you doing? What applications are you using? But like within those applications, How are what you using are it? you doing? Like talk us through your day and then we'll translate that into what hardware is best. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, of course. It's really, really great to have you. I was, I'm so glad. I'm so glad we were able to get you in here um, to, to 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 chat. It's really, really been a great hour. Absolutely, yeah. It's always great to talk with all you guys. Yeah, absolutely. And thank thanks so much to the panel uh, for uh, for being here and answering the questions, asking the questions. Thanks to the producers for all the questions that you asked today. Um, and a really, really busy first hour and second hour. So just really well done by the producers out there asking the questions. And thanks to the incredible team. Of course, this is not uh, your standard Zoom. <laughs> this is a, a very complex system, as we've talked about in the past. And there's an incredible development team that's designing it. There's a management team that's making sure we've got people like Matt to come on and join us uh, for the uh, for the hour. There is uh, an and then a production team that's actually cutting the show uh, every single day, seven days a week. So we really appreciate everybody's contribution. Traveled 74,000 miles today. Um, that's 119,000 kilometers. And that is 588 million bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. Hey, Matt, that was great. It was really good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's always. I always learn so much because I'm, I'm mostly a Mac guy. We have a couple PCs, you know, we have a lot of PCs in the in the office um, to do a, a variety of processing. But so I'm always like, oh, it's all oh, Matt's coming. That's a whole bunch of new things for me to learn. <laughs> Oh, and it just changes so much. Like, yeah, Apple yeah. releases new stuff, but a lot of it's very iterative. Yeah. Um, I mean, with some things like the M1s, that was like totally different. But right. yeah, the PC side, like, keeping up with everything. I mean, that's why I have a job. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I'm still. Pretty excited about the rumored 96 core AMDs. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see. That, we'll see. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm like, going to be very interested to look at it to see where it is good and where it yeah. is not. I mean, some of the photogrammetry stuff that I do will literally, no matter what computer oh, yeah. you put it on, it just maxes everything out. Like, because those those systems seem to be able to use use everything, you know. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That, that stuff is, photogrammetry, yeah, will definitely be a use case. Yeah. Um, I'm interested to see if some of these AI workflows will be able to port over to the CPU and be fast enough to be usable because right. then you don't have the video card memory yeah. limitation. You can have two terabytes of RAM and like you right. can do some crazy stuff then. Absolutely. Well, we're going to get, we're going to try to get you on more often if you're open to it. Cause yeah, of course, of course. It's always a great, great, uh, great time to have you here. All right. See you later. All right. See you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.